Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 20. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits, for it it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as, our for, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we praise you because you are not just our creator, but also a father who knows us and sees us and loves us and is working for our good, to grow us up into wisdom and strength and knowledge and character. And you've done this by sending your son into the world to rescue us from sin and to transform us by your spirit 
into his likeness. So we pray that you would be at work through your word this morning to do just that in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, I was reflecting on um, something I needed to do that I kept putting off over and over again. I was procrastinating on this thing. And I was asking myself as I was reflecting on this, why was I continually putting this off? And as I thought about it, I realized that I was hoping something unexpected would come along and just do it for me. I was delusional. I was avoiding the discomfort of stepping in to that thing I didn't want to do. I was lying to myself, and therefore I was living a lie. Now, lies are one of the main tools of our great adversary, uh, our enemy, the evil one. He uses these lies not just to tempt us to do bad things, but to live according to lies or delusions. Uh, in her book, Growing Up, Dr. Jenny Brown argues that the core component of immaturity is the drive for instant gratification. Childish immaturity, she says, is marked by an intolerance for waiting, being denied, and discomfort. A propensity towards emotional outbursts and tantrums, often to manipulate other people into doing for us what we don't want to do. An inability to do what is needed because of avoidance of unpleasant experiences and tasks. An unwillingness to take personal responsibility and a tendency to blame other people uh, and demand other people take responsibility for what belongs to us. She says that's what immaturity sort of broadly looks like. In contrast to that, maturity involves the ability to delay gratification and desires, the ability to recognize feelings and allow ourselves to feel them, but not to let them deter us from doing what we need to do. Bottom line, immaturity is about ignorance, foolishness, infidelity. All of those things are stoked by a resistance to waiting, wanting to get what we want right now. And maturity is marked by knowledge and wisdom and perseverance because it delays gratification. Now, Christian maturity is not fundamentally different than just maturity broadly. It's important that we understand that. Um, maturity, broadly speaking, is the same as what Christian maturity is aimed at. These are not separate things. When Christ uh, comes into the world and grows into maturity and lives a perfectly fully human life, and we're caught up into that and drawn into that maturity, it looks much like the maturity that uh, Dr. Brown just described, developing character and skills and wisdom in Jesus Christ. Now, this is hard. Growing up is hard, right? Growing is easy. All of us grow. We're always growing in one way or the other, but growing up into maturity is a very hard thing, right? If you're alive, you're growing in some way. You're changing and you're getting more, I guess you could say, more solidified in the direction that you're living. And this is consistent with what modern science is telling us about how our brains work and our habits and our bodies, that we, we are plastic, we change, but over time, the well-worn grooves of our life um, become deeper entrenched and form us in more solid ways. And so if we're going to grow up into maturity, we have to recognize that we are always on a path towards something. Growing up into maturity is a hard road. There are no shortcuts to it, right? Physical strength can only be gained through the hard road and suffering and pain of working out our muscles. And there are no shortcuts to wisdom either and to knowledge and to discernment. That takes us down a hard road. 
And unfortunately, we live in a time when technological conditions um, basically train us constantly to get our, our desires gratified instantly and to do things easy. That's what all, almost all our technology is aimed at. And this is working against us becoming mature, grown-up people. So this morning, we're going to talk about the importance of growing into maturity, but also the confidence that we can have that it is possible to grow into maturity. Now, we're doing this, of course, in this uh, book of Hebrews, where we've been seeing that Christ is greater than everything. He's greater than angels and Moses and Aaron and so on. And the, the argument that we've been hearing in Hebrews is that we must not fall away from following Christ and return to our previous ways of living. In the case of the audience, that's returning to the old covenant and to Judaism apart from Christ. And last week we saw that, that Christ is our great high priest, greater than Aaron. He's our broker. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he is our helper that heals us. And part of the way he heals us is he grows us up into maturity, into true humanity. And so um, this argument going on in Hebrews is interrupted in our passage today. And there's a focus on the author re rebuking his audience and challenging them to grow up and to not remain in immaturity. And so what I want us to see today is that Christ is our sure hope. He is our sure hope that produces maturity in us. So I want to begin by talking about the need to grow up. So chapter 5, verses 11 through um, chapter 6, verse 3, the need to grow up. Now, sometimes people ask me theological questions that, frankly, they are just not ready to handle. And that may bother you a little bit, um, but it is true, and it's rooted right in what the author says right here. Some understanding requires us to be a certain type of person to be able to grasp the truths that um, are, are um, being discussed, right? We, we have to be contained. We have to have certain types of knowledge, and we even have to be a certain type of person with a certain character, in order to really understand the subject. Now, think about this. If we went up to a doctor and said, teach me how to do heart surgery. I, uh, I read an anatomy book last night, and I know the basics of anatomy, so how do I do surgery? They would look at you like you're crazy. It's like, that, yeah, that's you've learned a little anatomy, great, but you don't grasp really how the body works and all the ways it works and all the systems to think that I can just give you a few true things and that suddenly you will understand how surgery works on a patient, right? And it's true in other areas of life as well. You have to be virtuous to understand why it is right and good to do the right thing in certain situations, even though it's costly, instead of doing a wrong thing that might give you some small benefit. You have to actually have virtue to see why doing the right thing when it's costly might be better to make that evaluation, that judgment requires being a certain type of person. Likewise, there are many things in the Christian faith that require a solid foundation that many don't have if they're going to understand the deeper things, so to speak. And that's what the author is saying here in um, the first few verses of our passage. This is a rebuke and a warning to his audience. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 again. He says, about this, we have much to say. This is a pause. He's been talking about how Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That word itself is weird. What is that about Melchizedek, right? And he says, there's a lot I could say about that, but it's hard to explain to you since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying, I want to explain this to you about Jesus being a high priest, but it's honestly out of your depth because you have become dull of hearing. You have been taught the basic things of Christianity, but now uh, really you need someone to go back and explain it to, to you again. You should be teaching other people by now, but you have become dull. You're like a baby who's still needing milk and rather than eating solid food. You haven't grown up. You haven't grown in the way you're supposed to, and you keep having to be fed the basic stuff. And he says essentially that maturity involves this development of the powers of discernment. And that comes, he says, through training, through practicing, to distinguish between good and evil. He says they're dull, not sharp, right? We use that term uh, to say someone is sharp, that they're, um, they're observant, they learn quickly, uh, they notice nuances. He says, you don't have that. You, you're dull of hearing. Now, all of us re resist growing up because it is painful, right? It, it's hard to grow up. It's painful, and, and we naturally avoid pain. The pain of growing up takes a lot of different forms. It can take the form of um, confronting unpleasant things about ourselves, about um, learning our erroneous ways of thinking or living. It can be um, hard because we, we strain to comprehend difficult or confusing ideas, and we don't want to bother with that. We want everything to be simple. Or maybe it's hard because we just fight boredom, and sometimes we're not intrigued by the, the information we need to learn. Or um, we, we move into stressful, uncomfortable situations if we're going to be mature, but that's hard if we want to remain immature. We don't want to move into that stress. Um, so there's a lot of things that make growing up hard. Um, it takes effort. And a lot of times we just think we're too busy for that. Or there's other important things I want to do. And, and we assume that we're just going to grow up without a lot of focus. Uh, or maybe we pretend that we're already grown up, right? But it's hard and we resist growing up. And the author then, because he's rebuked them in this way, he continues with an exhortation in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he's kind of surprising us here because he's just said they're dull of hearing. They're not really mature. They need to be taught the, the basic things again. But then he says, let's go on, which is a surprise. He doesn't explain the basics again. He actually moves on, even though he's just told them that they are mature. And um, a lot of people think that's because he's sort of provoking them and saying, hey, you know, you guys are still immature. You can't handle this stuff. And they're kind of like, well, we can, we can handle this, you know. And we, he wants them to rise to the challenge. And so um, he, he kind of reviews the basics of Christianity, which there's some strange uh, phrases here, repentance from works, uh, dead works, which probably means uh, repentance from works that lead to death. He's saying repentance from sin and faith toward God. These are things related to conversion. Talks about the washings, which actually could be translated the baptisms or baptism and the laying on of hands. These are things that relate to entrance into God's community of uh, God's people, right? Baptism and the laying on of hands was often, often associated with uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, sometimes related to ordination. Uh, and then last things, the resurrection, eternal judgment. He says, these are all the basic things. And we're not going to re rehash that. Um, but he wants them to pursue growing in knowledge and understanding beyond the basics. 
Now, friends, I want us to hear this, just a quick point, that um, the Christian life requires striving and effort. It does require that. The Christian life requires striving and effort toward the goal of godliness and maturity. A lot of times we think of Christianity as something that's opposed to striving, right? We talk about rest. We had a whole couple of sermons on that. That's true. Um, and we think God, God's about grace, not striving. Well, grace is opposed to being justified before God um, by our works. But grace is not opposed to our giving effort and striving towards godliness and maturity. We are commanded here and in many places to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to meditate on God's word, to learn how to obey all that Jesus commanded, and to seek wisdom. And this takes effort on our part. So I want us to think about that uh, as we hear the rest of the sermon. It, we, there is effort that, that we're called into. Furthermore, Christian teaching, uh, we, we see here, contains levels of importance. There are basic doctrines. There are things that the, the new converts need to learn that are kind of the core of the faith. And then there are other teachings that take that foundation to truly grasp and to grow into maturity. It's stated right here in our, our passage. But I also want to highlight that Christian maturity includes wisdom. Christian maturity includes wisdom. Now that might seem obvious, but often we think of childlike faith as being something that is opposed to wisdom. But that's not how the Bible uses the childlikeness of our faith. We are to be wholly dependent on God, just like a child. But we are not to remain simplistic in our thinking. We are to grow in wisdom and discernment. There is nothing noble about for your whole Christian life, embracing an attitude of, well, you know, the Bible says this, so I just believe it. I don't really understand it. I'm just going to remain sort of ignorant and because I just have this simple faith. Well, you know, simple faith saves us, absolutely saves us. But we are called to grow into maturity and to strive to discern good and evil and to learn how to be able to see the world through, through the lens of Scripture and to make good judgments in our life. So that's the first thing we need to see is there's this need for us to grow up in the faith. Now, the next thing we need to see is there's a danger in avoiding growing up. And this is commented in verses 4 through 8. What is the danger of not growing up. Well, I have to say this is one of the most controversial and debated set of verses in the whole Bible, especially in the New Testament. So it's a hard text to fully grasp, and people argue and debate about it a lot. So I want to just briefly try to answer a few questions that help clarify it for us. But let me read again verses 4 and following. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So who is being addressed here? Let's review that. This author is addressing Jewish Christians that is, people who have come into the church through baptism. They're part of the, the visible church. They're part of the covenant community of God. They've been baptized. They're communing with God. They're taking the Lord's table. They're participating in the life of the body. They've been receiving teaching. Um, they've gotten a sense of the joy and the blessing of Christ's kingdom. But then it says um, they are uh, those who might fall away. And what he means by that is he's talking about in this audience returning to the old covenant. Returning to Judaism, to going back to um, the temple system, uh, the very people that crucified Jesus, they're returning to their leadership and trying to walk with God under that arrangement. And he's saying, um, 
If you do that, you can't be restored to God in that system. That was the shadow of what um, Christ has come to be the substance of. They've aligned themselves with the Jews who crucified and publicly shamed Jesus. And he's saying, you, you can't have any restoration to God in that system. And there's even this sense that um, if you go back to that, after having tasted Christ, that um, it is very hard, if not impossible, to be restored again to the church. Now, why can't they be restored? Look at verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What he's saying is, is that if, if what they experience doesn't convince them to cling to Christ and persevere with him, there's really nothing else that can be given to them that will convince them. They're like a field who's been watered and planted and cultivated in all the best ways the farmer can do it. And instead of bringing up a harvest, it produces thorns and thistles. And it says at that point, the field is worthless. It needs to be burned because it can't be used as it is. And that's essentially a picture, he's saying, of those who fully taste the life of the church and the goodness of the gospel and yet they, they return to old ways. Now, uh, like I said, this is, this is, there's a certain context to this that we need to remember that there's a unique historical moment going on where the generation before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, um, they're the ones who received the ministry of Christ. That generation actually um, had people that saw Jesus and received the teaching. And they're in this transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. And they're saying, look, the, the substance of all God that God has been doing is here in Christ. The shadow is in that temple system. If you go back to that, it's impossible to be restored. There's a principle there for us today. We know this by experience, that those who fall away from the church are sometimes the hardest to recover for, for the good news of Christ, right? So um, th there's, a, there's a parallel to us in this situation today. It's sort of like when you get a vaccine, right? When, when you get a vaccine, you get a little bit of the, the virus injected in you and your body's immune system responds to that, I think. And, uh, and then it, it builds up a, a sort of a defense against that virus. That's sort of how it is if, if you participate in the life of the church and you've been taught and you think you understand it all and then you walk away, it's sort of like you've been almost been inoculated. And it's hard for that, now I mean, this virus is usually negative, but it's hard for the virus of Christianity to get in again, right? You can think of it in relational terms. Um, when you allow yourself to grow cold towards someone that you love um, and you start getting a narrative about them, and you start developing a hardness toward them, it's, it's actually almost harder to have a, a love for them restored than for someone to meet them for the first time and get to know them and fall, fall in love with them. Uh, because of the, the moral way that we change when we harden ourselves toward another person. And that's, I think, part of what is being warned about here in this passage. We're all solidifying in some way. Are we solidifying towards hardness toward God or towards maturity, softness, Growth into likeness of Christ. So immaturity makes us vulnerable. That's the, that's the whole point of him saying this here. He's saying you need to grow up. If you don't grow up, you are in danger of being in a situation where it's easier for you to fall away, which is a very dangerous place to be. Why does immaturity lead us to that danger? Well, because we can be easily deceived. Uh, because um, we might get pressured to conform to the ways of the world or other systems. And because we haven't built up a strength of character, we, we fall uh, victim to that pressure and we compromise. So this is a warning. Don't stay immature because it brings with it a danger of falling away. 
Now, I want to return to thinking about the tools of the evil one. I started off by saying I was living a lie. I was living delusionally by procrastinating. Um, that's not the only way that the devil um, lies to us. He also lies by telling us that we can't change. And um, you know this, I'm sure, this experience of, of seeing over and over again you failing in some area of, of your life or feeling like it's very hard to change and grow up in certain places, and so you begin to despair. And what follows that is like this resignation to that way of being that you just feel like there's no way out of this. I can't stop being like this. I was reading a book recently, and there was this great quote that I think names this very well. The author says, when we resign to unwanted, immature behavior, we are canceling our commitments to being men and women of integrity. When futility goes unaddressed, it will eventually taunt us with the message that nothing can be done to change our situations. When we attempt to change, we may even hear ourselves say, there is too much brokenness behind me to overcome. I am unwanted and beyond repair. Rather than transform this toxic message, we find it easier to collude with it. Our lives are hijacked each time we choose indifference with the things that matter. What the author is saying here is that the devil lies to us that we can't change. And that leads to this resignation that, yeah, it's, it's pointless to try to grow up in this area. It's pointless to, to keep fighting. Um, but it does raise for us the question, what then is our hope that we can grow up, especially in light of the fact that all of us can probably name, if we're being honest with ourselves, areas of our life where we feel like there's been a pattern of immaturity, pattern of sin. How do we have any confidence that we can grow up? Well, that's the last thing I want us to see today which is there is confidence that we can grow up. And look at verses 13 through 20. There are three reasons here that we have confidence to grow up. The first is the previous growth that is in our lives. That's one of the foundations for our confidence, previous growth. The author says to those he's writing to, though we speak in this way, this warning about their immaturity, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So what he's doing here is pointing to the fruit of their life. He's saying, look, you're immature, but there is fruit here. I see love for Christ and for his people. I see you have a pattern of obeying God. And so you don't seem like the sort of people that would fall away. He sees this fruit, he names it, and he says, that should give you some comfort that you do belong to God. He's already been at work in your life that there is this fruit that comes from the Spirit. That's the first ground for confidence. Secondly, he grounds our confidence in God's sure promise. Look at verses 13 through 18. I'm not going to read it again. It's kind of a confusing little passage. But what he's doing here is recalling God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, where God promises to be a God to Abraham and to bless him and to multiply him and to bring him into his kingdom and to be his God. And he says, um, the author says that when God made that promise, he also took an oath along with that. It's, it's an extra way of sort of giving affirmation of what he has just said. And of course, because God is God, there's nothing for him to take an oath on because he's the highest being that there is. And so he took an oath on himself. And it's like this, this double testimony to the fact that God cannot lie. And he says, therefore, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope 
set before us. That's verse 18. In the Old Testament, if a person committed manslaughter, they accidentally killed someone through an accident or uh, something like that, they could flee to um, the, the altar of God, so to speak. They could go to the holy place and grab hold of the altar of God and, and ask for refuge. And the image that's being used here is that Jesus has entered into God's presence to the altar and he is our refuge. He is clinging to that altar and we cling to him. The promise here is that God has given us a refuge for our sin in Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings pardon and liberation, not just forgiveness, but freedom. He sets us free from our sin. He is our hope that we are forgiven and that we are being transformed. And so we can cling to him with all our doubts, with all our immaturity. We can hold on to him because he is our refuge and our sure hope. That's the third thing he highlights is that Jesus is our anchor. He is our anchor. Verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has already, he tells us, persevered. He has struggled through life. He has faced pain. He also grew in wisdom and in stature, facing the pain and stress and opposition and hostility. He ran the race that all of us have to run, and he acts as an anchor that is ahead of us, pulling us toward maturity. Right? Normally when we think of an anchor, we think of it on a boat where, where it prevents someone from drifting. Right? You, you uh, use an anchor to keep people from moving. But here this image is almost the opposite of that. It's that we're tethered to Jesus and he is pulling us toward our goal of maturity and life in the presence of God. This may be a silly illustration, but one of my favorite um, movies is The Princess Bride. And you remember uh, when they see the cliffs of insanity? how much of a struggle it looks like. How are we going to go up that huge mountain? It's straight up, filled with rocks. It's dangerous. There's no way we can get up there. And so um, they all grab onto Fezzik, right? The, Andre the Giant. And he, it, it, the scene is great. He's just sort of like going like this. And there are, there's like three people holding on to him. And there he goes. He's just going up the cliffs of insanity. And he's taking them up to the top. And there's a sense in which I think that's the anchor that Jesus is, that we cling to him. And in some sense, he's already at the top, but in another sense, he is bringing us with him into maturity, and it's, uh, it's something he's powerful enough to do. And all of us, friends, have an anchor of our soul in some sense. All of us have an anchor. It may not be a sure anchor, but it's something we look to as a stabilizing force that gives us hope that there is a future for us. But a lot of us lose that over time, right? That, that our life, we face circumstances that eventually um, the thing that we were trusting in to get us through life, to get us where we wanted to be, we realize fails, right? It could be money or love or accomplishment or a vision of our life in some way, but they are not sure anchors. But Jesus is a sure hope. He has died for us. He is risen again from the dead. He reigns at the right hand of the Father. He is our priest already in God's presence who is pulling us into God's good future for us. That is our confidence that we can grow up. So let us press on to maturity in faith by dedicating ourselves to Christian teaching, to training. And we do that with confidence that Christ will bring us to God. Maturity is painful. It's hard to grow up. It often feels like we're, we're being stripped away. We're being laid bare. We're losing things that we need or that are valuable to us, but actually Jesus is pulling us into the goodness 
of God's life and away from that which hinders us. So three quick, um, uh, four quick applications as we reflect on this whole passage. First, we need to have an urgency about pursuing growth in knowledge of the faith. We need an urgency about this. This is explicitly what our text tells us today. He desires for his readers that they would show the same earnestness in order that they would have full assurance of hope until the end so that they may not be sluggish. We need an urgency, friends. Are you growing up? You're growing, but are you growing up? Right? Boats drift if you don't put up the sail. They just The wind and the currents take it somewhere. But if you put up that sail, you can catch the wind and head to a particular destination. That's sort of a picture of the Christian life. We don't make ourselves grow, but we put up the sail and allow God's wind to blow us towards God's good destination for us. So we need to press on beyond the basic matters. Some of you here today should be teachers by now. But you need the foundation laid for you again. You're like a a child who is still a baby who still needs the milk. And you may be saying, well, I'm too busy. I've got a lot on my plate right now. And I just want to say, watch out for that. The vast majority of us lie about whether or not we're really dedicated to important things. We choose to be busy with things that we find important and we avoid hard things, hoping that it's going to come easy. But that is a lie. We need to pursue growth in Christian teaching. At Trinity, one of the ways we do that is through our seminars. There's a reason why we start with basics and we move towards more advanced because we're trying to intentionally take you on a path towards maturity. It's not a sort of choose your own adventure, study what you're interested in. We're trying to say you need to know these things before you know these things before you know these things. Secondly, wake up to the danger of becoming dull. Wake up to the danger of becoming dull. Falling away and receiving judgment is a real danger. This book is filled with warnings about that. I I want you to walk with confidence and assurance that you belong to God, but we must not lose sight of these warnings that if we do not strive and press on towards godliness, that um, there is a real danger that we would fall away and show ourselves to not truly believe in Christ. One of the main ways you do that is you just show up and you worship God. You stay in church. Don't let the small little things about the church drive you insane and push you away. There are many things that the church, this church, all churches um, fail at and are not doing well. And they are real problems that in no way am I trying to gloss over those. We need to address those in our church, in the larger denomination, in the larger Christian church. But friends, we cannot forsake God's church. It is the school um, of God's people. It is the hospital for sinners. And um, this is where you grow into maturity. And some of you, um, it's incredibly hard to show up. And I get that. There's pain associated with it. There is violence done to you. And I understand that. And maybe for you, a sign of God's work in your life is just that you show up for a while. That's, that's all you've got. And that's a sign of God's work um, in your life. Others of you need to press in and be more dedicated to worship and to God's people and to the training that the church offers. Thirdly, um, listen to and imitate the saints ahead of us. It says in verse 12, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We are a people that are to imitate the saints that have gone ahead of us. That, That means the saints in God's church, Catholic, but it also means the saints right here in our church, 
the older tested saints. Not just the older saints, but also the saints who have been with Jesus a long time, longer than we have. Those who have learned more than us, those who have become teachers, those who are proven to follow Christ under pressure and suffering, right? A child that ignores or disregards his parents' wisdom is a fool. That's what Proverbs tells us. A wise person receives instruction. A wise person watches those who are wise and follows after them. Lastly, Cling to Jesus. He is our anchor. Cling to Jesus because he is our anchor. He's not just an anchor that keeps us from drifting, but he is an anchor that pulls us into the presence of the Father as the one who has gone ahead of us and lived a perfect life and is making us into his image. I was thinking um, about this uh, this morning, that um, often God's work in our life is invisible to us. You may, seem like, you may feel like you have been trusting Christ, but for a long time, you just feel like you haven't seen any real change. It's like you're, you're clinging to him, but it's like, what's, I, don't, I haven't been able to get over this roadblock in my sanctification, or I haven't been able to grasp these things that I feel like I should get by now. And I want, you to say that a lot, I want you to see that a lot of God's work in your life by his spirit is invisible to us. That the spirit is working in the deep parts of who we are. Changing, uh, our, changing the sort of infrastructure inside of us that's not always conscious to us. And so um, sometimes all you can do is just keep clinging to Christ and trusting that God is changing you, that he is pulling you into God's good future. Christ is our hope who brings us to the Father and is a forerunner on our behalf. He grew in wisdom and stature. He lived a perfect life trusting in God's promises even to the point of death trusting that God would raise him from the dead. And that is what we see in this meal that we are about to eat. In this meal, we cling in hope to Jesus Christ as we eat of his body and drink of his blood. And we do this in faith, clinging to him, trusting that he is making us into his likeness and taking us into the presence of the Father by the Spirit. So let's pray together.